Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. For our guest today, please welcome Ian Bain, currently serving as mayor of Redwood City, California. Ian has served on the city council since 2003, in addition to having served a one-year term in 1998. For more information, feel free to visit www.redwoodcity.org. That is www.redwoodcity.org. Hello, Ian. We're excited and honored to have you on the Modern Architect Radio Show today. Happy to be here, Tom. Thank you. Ian, I'd like to start with early inspirations. We want to, I'd like to capture the essence of the good work that you're doing. How early can you recall being mayor of Redwood City and all the dynamics involved with it? Did you ever see yourself doing this even as a, as a kid? I did actually. Okay. So um, I, I've got a couple of funny stories related to that, but Perfect. I'll, I'll get back to that. So I, I would say my earliest inspiration was my father had a strong interest in, in government and really instilled in me the belief that government can be a force for good in people's lives. I remember watching the uh, conventions of 1972 where there were people holding all these signs and asking my dad a bunch of questions about, you know, who are these people? What are they doing? Why do they, why do they have these signs? What are they saying? So I grew up, you know, really believing that government can be a force for good. And I remember my grandmother gave me a couple of records of John F. Kennedy's speeches. And so I would listen to those records over and over again and memorize those speeches and just think about how, you know, he was someone who could inspire people to do amazing things. I mean, you know, putting a person on the moon, you know, as president of the United States, you don't have the power to do that. What he did was he inspired the people who did have the power to do that. Wow. Yeah. So how old do you can recall? I was probably about 12 years old when I, uh, when I had those records, I was living in Palo Alto at the time. My family later moved to Berkeley halfway through high school and I got involved in student government there. And I actually ended up becoming student body president of Berkeley High, even though I transferred nice. in as a junior. So That's not easy to do, well, especially uh, you're a newcomer. Yeah, yeah. so I, I kind of reinvented myself when I got to Berkeley, and I, I just introduced myself to everybody I could think of. And Berkeley was a very diverse place. So I, I basically went around to every group on campus and got to know them and introduced myself and didn't really have one group that I hung out with, but everybody knew me. And elected me student body president. So that was a fun experience. And it also gave me a taste of, first of all, I can win elections. And second of all, it was it was just fun to be the leader of the school. Yeah. I like how you said that reinvented myself. Usually that happens when someone's 
older, but you reinvented yourself when you were a teenager. Well, I or was, you're able to. I would say that yeah, growing up, I was kind of a shy kid. You know, I was I was a little bit of a bookworm and kind of kept to myself. And when I moved to Berkeley, uh, I became a lot more outgoing and got to get to know people. Really? So you were shy entering high school? If you, if you yeah, would call so, yourself. Yeah, my first two years I was a gun high school. I, I kind of kept to myself. I had a few, a handful of friends who I, I <laughs> hung out with, but I wasn't the most popular guy there. So that was my opportunity, changing schools to kind of, you know, shed whatever image people have of you and just start fresh. You're right. That's right. Huh? And so, yeah, that gave me a taste of politics and government. And then I went to Cal for four years. I was a, a political science major. Which And what I say about that is, you know, there's this old saying that, you know, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Oh, I, I will say that being a poli-sci major does not at all prepare you for the real world of politics and government. Well, how's how not so in your experience? It was all theoretical. You know, there was a lot of discussion about Machiavelli, a lot of discussions about, you know, different people's political theories that had never run for office themselves. You know, and, and theory is interesting, but... You know, really, when you're actually involved in, in government, it's a whole different uh, scenario. Yeah. You said that theoretical. How often does it change being mayor of Redwood City on even on a weekly basis if it does change the, the dynamics of the city? I would say not. You know, the dynamics of the city haven't changed much since I've been mayor, which has been the last year. But since I first served my, my term in 1998, it's changed quite a bit. Just a little bit about how I got involved in Redwood City. I actually had lived in Redwood City briefly as a kid when I was about six and seven years old. And I have a lot of very fond memories of different places, particularly Stolsaf Park, which if you're not familiar with, is a big open park that's kind of in the middle of the city. And you you go in there and you feel like you're, you know, in the middle of the woods. I remember going there with my dad. I remember going to Marine World and, you know, other, other places, you know, that, you know, just really had some fond memories for me. So when I, after I graduated from Cal, I was thinking about where I wanted to settle down. And I actually started working at a, a home and training center for adults with developmental disabilities. It's called Kynos. And in the process of doing that, I realized that this was a community where people really care about each other, where, you know, they lift each other up. And if somebody stumbles, they'll help you up. And I had never seen that kind of sense of community anywhere else I'd lived, not in Palo Alto, not in Berkeley. And it really attracted me. I said, I really want to be part of this. So I moved to Redwood City permanently in the early 90s. And this is after I'd, so I started working at Kinos in 1989. And I moved back here, I think, 92, 93. And then I got appointed to the Housing and Human Concerns Committee, which is a committee that oversees funding for nonprofits and also distributes the CDGB grants from the federal government. Mm. And then very quickly after that, I ran for city council age 27. So I, it was 1995. I was 27 years old. I lost. I came in somewhere in the middle of the pack. I think there were 13 candidates. I came in sixth or seventh. And then I ran two years later, and that time I came in fourth for three seats. I lost by 129 votes. And that was very frustrating. But three months later, a council member resigned, and the council appointed me to fill that seat just for a year until the next general election. That was in early 1998. I was appointed to fill that seat. I had to run that November. And I lost my seat. So at that point, I'd gotten a taste of it. I thought, you know, this is really a job that I'm meant to be doing, that I'm good at. I really enjoyed, you know, working with the residents, trying to help them solve problems. Mm-hmm. And I missed it when I lost that seat. 
So I took five years off and basically just focused on my family and yeah. sat on the sidelines and had conversations with my neighbors. And one of the things I realized during that time is that when you're in City Hall, you kind of get caught up in what I call the swirl, which is these policy discussions. But when you're outside of the City Hall looking in, you really think of the world in a different way. You think of the 30 feet in front of your house, okay. whether your trees are trimmed, whether your sidewalk is repaired, whether uh, your local park is, is nice to take your little kids to. It's a whole different way of looking at the world. It really kind of grounds you in what, what day-to-day issues are. Yeah. It sounds like that being away and even some of those, frustra- those frustrations actually turn in, you turned them into an advantage. Yeah, I did. Okay. So in 2003, I ran again, and I won that time. And I was reelected in 2007, 2011, and 2015. And in 2015, I ended up being the top vote getter. Oh, nice. And so yeah. I, I often like to tell that story, particularly to young people, because it's a story of resilience and persistence. And I don't say that to brag. I tell people that, you know, if you really believe in something, you want something, keep going for it. And in the end, hopefully it'll pay off for you. Yeah. So you've turned that around, that resilience and persistence. How much do you believe running a city and having it well run has to do with that resilience, persistence, and even kind of a kind of a crude word, grit, yep. a sense of grit is... Is will, that a reach or? Uh, no, I, I will okay. say it has served me very well. Okay. Um, you know, it has not always been smooth sailing running Redwood City. I mean, Redwood City, you know, you mentioned the word dynamic. Yes. Yeah. It has constantly changed and not everybody's happy about that change. And so there's a lot of issues that we've need, needed to deal with. I mean, politics. So there, we, there are two different discussions we could have. One is about politics and the other one's about governing. And each has its challenges and some of those challenges overlap, but believe me, when you have to run for office and you have to face the voters and you have to f- face attacks from competitors, that's where the grit that you just referred to really comes in. Do you recall any stories where a citizen or citizen's group was upset about the change and they've actually turned around either their perspective or their own experience changed from that neg- negative to a positive? Well, I can give you a lot of situations where people were upset about the change and, you know, the where they've turned around is a little bit harder to do. I will say that I recently had a dialogue with somebody who is upset about the fact that we put a sales tax on the ballot. And we had a lot of back and forth dialogue about that. And I will say that, you know, he understands the reasoning, whereas he didn't initially and doesn't necessarily agree with it, but has I'd say agreed to work with us in a constructive way as we go into the next budget cycle in terms of how we manage our expenses, particularly pension liabilities. So I would say that I've been able to bring him into solutioning as opposed to just complaining and being upset. Okay. But there are a lot of times when the public didn't agree with the direction the council was taking. One of them was, I believe it was in 2004, the council approved a project called Marina Shores which was some towers basically out where Peninsula Park is now. It's sort of near Pete's Harbor, if you know the area. Yes. And the council got out way in front of where the public was in terms of heights, in terms of building near the bay. And a group of citizens put an initiative on the ballot and actually overturned the council's decision. Wow. So that project ended up taking a whole different form and becoming much smaller. The developer rethought it and resubmitted it and went through a lot of public discussions where he negotiated with members of the public to the point that there was very little opposition when it finally passed again in a, in a very different form. But that was a case where you know the council did get out 
too far in front of the public. I mean, another example, which you may have heard of, is the proposed development of the salt flats. There was a proposal called Salt Works, where it was a partnership between DMB and Cargill, and that ended up becoming a proposal where the developer wanted to build 12,000 homes on the salt flats. And that, I would say, was <laughs> it was very unpopular. There were some people who thought it was a good idea, but I will tell you the overwhelming consensus that I heard from the community was, do not allow that to happen. And it wasn't zoned for housing. It was something where the council had agreed to hear what the developer had to say to entertain a proposal. But, you know, ultimately the community was not ready to go there. And I, I still don't think they are. But, you know, there was for five years, I would say that was a very tense issue in the community. And it, it really dwarfed anything yeah. else that we were talking about. So it wasn't just tangible. Could you almost feel it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I personally was very happy when that proposal went away. I hope it doesn't come back because it was very divisive. You know, it was really hard to get some other things done while that was floating out there. Yeah. Now, how do how do members of the community reach out to you? Obviously, you have a phone number and your email, but how how often do they reach out to you and discuss what they're happy about or what they're even not happy about and what they <laughs> think could be done to change it? Right. Well, 95% of the time when I hear from people, they're not happy about something. Uh, 95, they, really? They don't generally, oh. people don't generally write to say, hey, I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. When I do get those emails, it makes my day. I do a little <laughs> dance. But well, after 95%, I w never would have thought well, it was that. That's a lot to deal with. People generally don't reach out when they're happy. I mean, people, I do get a lot of comments from people saying, hey, I think you're doing a great job. Keep it up. But when people email me or when they leave me a voicemail, it's usually because they're having a problem. Does it get pretty belligerent sometimes? I would say that's rare. Okay, people, but it doesn't have, People it are doesn't. not usually belligerent. They're usually just, you know, very matter of fact. Sometimes people are upset, but they're not necessarily upset with me or the council mm -hmm. or even necessarily the city itself. They're just having a problem and they want somebody to help. So it's really internal. More it so is. Than, it's, more, it's more about them than it is about us. And, and I'm the kind of person who looks at everything as the people having positive intentions. So when somebody reaches out to me, I think that what they're trying to do is positive. They're just trying to get their issue resolved. Or they're expressing a different point of view because they've grown up in a different environment. They have a different perspective. A lot of times maybe they like things the way they are and they don't like change, which, you know, that's human nature. Yeah. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1. FM. Want to improve the quality of your kids' education? Would you like to see more hands-on learning, real-world connections, and experiences that help kids build critical 21st century skills? RAFT, the resource area for teachers, supports teachers with affordable tools and training that have a direct impact in the classroom. Donations are always welcome. To learn more, visit raft.net. We're talking today with Ian Bain, mayor of Redwood City, California. For more information, you can visit www.redwoodcity.org. That's redwoodcity.org. Ian, about that listen to the community. I know as mayor, you have only so many hours in the day, but is it your experience almost always, at least in your mind and your heart, you know, what's going on with the city at some level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a resident of the city. I love Redwood City. I love living in Redwood City. I, I want it to be a place that my kids are proud of. So it's always on my mind. Most of the communication I get these days is by email. 
So I'm constantly looking at what's coming into my inbox and <laughs> seeing what's on people's minds and getting reports from staff and, and my colleagues. So it, it's always on my mind. Yeah. Within the last 20 years even, but we'll just go back, say, with the last five years, there's been so much change. In my opinion, it's po- very positive. It's definitely a city that you, you go into, and I feel like it's an actual self-sustaining city. I don't know if that's just my experience, but how do you maintain that and then how do you you know continue to re- refine it even right it's been a an interesting process a very enlightening process and i will tell you it's not what i expected so you may be aware that redwood city is a charter city which means that uh, we have to have a general plan so we refreshed our general plan in 2010 which is basically you know where do you put homes where do you put businesses what types of homes what kinds of you know how do you do this place making concept where people can walk from you know their house to to the businesses nearby so there's a lot of thought that went into that general plan and then in 2011 we passed actually for the second time our downtown precise plan and what that plan did was prescribe how much office space there could be with a cap of 500,000 square feet how many housing units we could build downtown, which was 2,500, and then a hotel, and I believe there's one other thing that, that I'm blanking on at the moment, but, <laughs> but a lot of thought and discussion went into that plan, and the plan was designed to make it easier to attract development to our downtown. So we used to have a very sleepy downtown, I'll put it that way, and we knew that we needed an economic engine in the downtown area. We needed more housing to support more businesses down there, which, you know, really now it's become more of an entertainment hub with, with a lot of restaurants. And, oh, it's outstanding. It really well, is. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and so, and, but you know, it's been, it's been a group effort and it's a little bit like, I'd say kind of like having your hands on a Ouija board. I mean, it kind of, <laughs> that's been a while, you know, but we're near Halloween. It, 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 mo- <laughs> it moves around on its yeah. own, not in, always in the direction you want it yeah. to, but I would say overall, it's gone in a positive direction. And the best thing that we ever did was building the courthouse square plaza. So I don't know if you recall, but there actually used to be a building there. It was built in the 1930s and it was designed to expand the courtrooms, but it covered up the facade of the beautiful old historic courthouse. And we saw an opportunity to tear that down and create a plaza that we would uh, see as a community's living room. And it really has lived up to that. And it's now a place where we celebrate all cultures. So from Chinese New Year to Fiestas Patrias to uh, the Lebanese Festival, we celebrate all cultures there. And it's also become a, a place where throughout the county, there will be rallies and other things that take place there. So it's really become a, a kind of a melting pot where all these different people of all different backgrounds come together. And it, it's great. It helps support the businesses best thing we ever did. And at the same time, we also allowed a movie theater complex to go in across the street, and that's drawn people down there. I would say that it was not at all controversial until uh, some of the big buildings started going up, and then that's when we started hearing from the public that not everybody had been paying attention to the plan, and not everybody was happy about what they were seeing. Yeah, you said that uh, several things that are interesting, but we'll touch on uh, one of them is the community's living room. Yes. Is that something, a phrase you've coined? or I, I didn't coin that term. Okay. I, I don't know who did, actually. I okay. think it may have been our previous city manager, but it stuck, and it's true. I mean, it's it really is a place where all of these different people come together, and it's in stark contrast to the tribalism that you see throughout the country these days. Yeah, so you got the community's living room, but you also have 
<laughs> it's really interesting how it serves as a an economic engine, as you see it, because it's it has the people that's its the center and economic engine. Is that it has that process? Is that a theme of a process for a lot of the development? Is 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 there an economic engine to it for the community? Yeah, well, so economic development is one of our seven strategic priorities. But I would say it means different things to different people. And it means different things in a down economy versus a very hot economy like we have right now. I mean, for me right now, it's really about attracting the kinds of businesses we want and retaining the kind of businesses we want to keep. And it needs to be very diverse, not just large companies, but all the mom and pop shops that add diversity to our economy. We want to keep those. It also has to do with, again, the types of businesses. So, you know, we're all contemplating the future of auto dealerships. But, you know, for now, those contribute quite a bit to our economy. Really? Okay. But, you know, we also have several software companies. We have a lot of restaurants in the downtown core. So there's a lot of different types of businesses we want to attract and maintain. One of the things that's really been key for me is I want to try to bring back some of the family fun and recreation that we used to have. So we used to have a bowling alley. We used to have a roller rink. We used to have Malibu Grand Prix. I mentioned Marine World earlier. So there are now models, new models for entertainment, family entertainment that work. So there's Lucky Strike is a bowling alley chain, and there are similar types of businesses that are upscale that uh, work in today's economy. I've been talking to a company called Big Al's, which is up in Oregon. They're opening up a facility in Milpitas where they do, again, it's bowling alley. I think they have like a little mini golf place inside. But I think that type of business could do very well in Redwood City and really bring back something that the community misses. Yeah, so you're drawing on that what you experienced and the feelings you you had and still have of what Redwood City meant to you yeah. and still can mean to you. Now you're in obviously in a position to actually um, take actionable steps to make it all happen. That's got to be pretty fun. I it, mean, at some level. It, it, <laughs> it can be, but it will yeah. be more fun if I can actually get one of these businesses to say, yes, we're going uh, to open up in, you know, in uh, your community. And that's where I need help from developers. And so I have these conversations with developers all the time. As you know, there's a lot of interest in building in Redwood City. And so you know, we, we have to negotiate. You know? So as we're having our discussions about what we're going to allow them to do, we also say, what, what are you going to do for us? You know, one of the things I've been saying is I, I really want to help bring back some of these recreational uses because it's got to be, you know, for my residents, and they're the ones I'm representing, not the developers, it's got to be about their quality of life. So if you want something from us, we want some things from you. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm negotiating. How, how has their response been, if you're at liberty to share with us, when uh, well, you, you take that? I'd say there's been a range of responses. Okay, but, from not so good to great? Right, uh, okay. exactly, yeah. I mean, okay. you know, the, you know I, I do not put developers all in one category. There are what I consider good developers, and there are bad developers, and there's everything in between. And the best developers that I work with are the types of people who listen to the community and what the community's needs are. And I think that we have done, not only as a council, but as staff and throughout our documentation, signaled to the development community what we like and what we don't like. You know, I have these conversations all the time. And, and so I think the good developers are people who listen to that and they come in with projects that meet a community need and bring some things to the community the community wants. Yeah. So does it work both ways in that they actually reach out to you and you reach out to, to them? Well, it's mostly them reaching out to me. Really? Um, okay. 
Yeah, because they're the ones who want to build something. And sometimes it conforms with their plan and sometimes it deviates from the plan. And certainly if they're proposing something that deviates, that's when there's a lot of room for negotiation. Yeah. How is how are things changed in the last say five years in Redwood City, just just with the development? Yeah. So I, I mentioned that our, our downtown precise plan, I think many of us, I'll speak for myself, thought it was going to play out over a much longer time frame, like maybe more like 15 to 20 years as opposed to in five years. So a lot of stuff kind of dropped on our plates all at once. And that was a lot of change for the community to accept all at the same time. So uh, we definitely did experience uh, some backlash from that. And, you know, frankly, I think there were some projects that could have been better, uh, better in terms of architecture, better in terms of meeting community needs. But we did get some good projects out of it, too. Yeah, you've got the Courthouse Plaza. When you look at any prospective development, do you always see you, you want that kind of dynamic in every facet, especially with the uh, recreational users, you want to be able to have something that sustains 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. I I think we all would like to leave a positive legacy. And so, you know, we look at ways we can do that. Uh, The Courthouse Plaza was really a unique opportunity. And I don't know that we have a big opportunity like that, but we do have several smaller opportunities for public art, for example, and creating new parks. So we're, we're talking about some very interesting things right now in terms of creating parkland in the downtown area where we currently have parking lots. Um, oh, okay. That's not without controversy, of course, but, uh, but just imagine you know, creating more open space where people could walk uh, you know, alongside a creek or you know, just have a trail where they could walk through the downtown. Uh, I think we have some really interesting opportunities there. Yeah, that walkability. There's a there's a city in Spain, maybe maybe a couple, but I know one in particular that I I discovered last week that there's cars aren't in the downtown area, and that, so they have to either park outside of the city or they've gone underground to where there's there's parking there, and then the community comes to, comes into it. And there was a lot of initially there was a lot of a lot of backlash for that, mm-hmm. and they've done it. And that's the way it works now. And the city has just thrived. What's your take on that? May, that might be extreme. I don't know if it's extreme is a bad word because I wouldn't mind an area where there's no cars. But some people want to be able to drive in. What's your thought on something to that level? I would say it's hard to imagine getting to that point from where, <laughs> where we are right now. Parking is still essential to a successful downtown. I think we can all envision a future where we don't need it, where everyone you know, either gets a ride through some self-driving vehicle, but I think there's debate over how far away that future is. Some people think it's, it's closer than I think it is. So in the short term, we still need to provide plenty of parking for people. The way that we've been doing that is working with developers to incorporate public parking into their projects. So some of the developments that have just opened up now have a lot of parking in them. And that parking is actually underutilized, I think, in part because a lot of people don't know about it. Some people are naturally resistant to parking in garages. But I think that over time, that's going to adjust and people will get more used to it. And as they do, and as those, the usages in those garage goes up, we can decrease the usage on street parking. So it's possible that maybe 50 years from now, we'll have a downtown where there are no no cars. But I I think we need to be very realistic about what the short-term needs are. And we can't simply just take parking away, hoping that people are going to find other means to get there. Right now, we don't have those means. So we'll have to look at that.
Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The California Water Impact Network, or CWIN, is a nonprofit organization that works to ensure equitable and environmentally sensitive use of California's water. Recent goals have included ensuring that adequate water flows through the San Francisco Bay Delta and upstream rivers, stopping poor irrigation practices, which can waste water and poison our land, waterways, and wildlife, and ensuring that water resources are allocated fairly. If you'd like to become a member, donate, or volunteer, go to c-win.org. That's c-win.org. We're talking today with Ian Bain, mayor of Redwood City, California. For more information, feel free to visit www.redwoodcity.org. That's www.redwoodcity.org. Org. Ian, how do you compartmentalize all the facets involved with running a city, growing a city, and still keeping its, uh, you know, its core history? I mean, that just sounds like too much to me, for me, but right. you, <laughs> yeah, I you're doing it. I, yeah, I don't know if it's um, compartmentalization, but I will just say that, that we have a full-time city manager. City council is a part-time job. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so for me, I'm toggling between what I need to do with my work and what I need to do with my running the city and what I need to do with my family. I'm already tired. I would say, yeah, I would say for me, for me personally, that, that all kinds of blends together. Uh, but in terms of, I think there's a different question that you're getting at too, which is, you know, how does a city like Redwood City maintain its soul as it goes through these changes? And so one, that's, that's something that I've thought about quite a bit. And I would say that, you know, again, I refer to that sense of community where people looked after each other, they care about each other, and it still feels like a small town, even though we're approaching 85,000 people. The way that I think we're going to maintain that is through our neighborhood associations. So basically, the city has looked at our neighborhoods and kind of defined some natural boundaries. So where, you know, certain streets uh, separate people. And we have appointed people as leaders of those neighborhoods where they hold meetings and also aligned it with the online neighborhoods, so next door. And we're actually the first city in the nation to have next door align its neighborhoods with our neighborhoods. And so we're helping bring the online and offline worlds together. And we're using the neighborhood associations as a way to communicate to residents and have them communicate to us. So I, I write a monthly letter that goes out to all of the neighborhood chairs, as well as our board committee commission members. How many are um, there? We have 17 neighborhoods. Okay. And so, uh, you know, each of them has one or two leaders. And we ask that they hold an annual event. It doesn't have to be a meeting, but if they want to do a meeting there, that's great. Some of them meet regularly, but at least have an annual event where it's like a block party. And the city will... <laughs> put some funds in where people get to know each other and they get to know each other's neighbors. A lot of times that'll happen on national night out, but others will pick different dates and it does create that sort of sense of a small town still. And I think that that will become even more important as we continue to change and grow. Yeah. What was the inspiration for that? Well, we've had neighborhood associations for a long time, but they've, a lot of them have been dormant. Um, and some of the neighborhood boundaries really didn't make any sense. So with the, the previous mayor, when I was serving as vice mayor, we, we sat down on our first meeting actually and kind of looked at that and said, you know, it makes sense to redraw some of these lines and to also take a look at some of the leadership. If they're not holding any kind of regular meetings or events, 
And then we politely ask them to step aside and ask other politely people. Politely ask them to step aside. Yeah. Well, we, like ask, we try to ask other people to step up first. Okay. You know, and, there, and there were a lot of good people who want to get involved. I mean, particularly we saw after the 2016 presidential election, people were like, I want to do something. I want to get involved somehow. And we said, okay, well, here's a chance to get involved on a hyper-local level and help your neighborhood. You know, and so you know, a lot of people have stepped up to that challenge. Yeah. How is it, has it grown or have you seen the... What's the experience of these neighborhoods versus when they were rather dormant? Well, Their involvement with it, you and the it, I think it's been very positive because, okay. you know, it, it gives us, again, that two-way feedback loop where a lot of times in the past the city has proposed, uh, say, street improvements or traffic calming. What's it called? Traffic? Traffic calming. Calming. Yes. Yeah, calm. So, okay. so one, of, one of the themes, no matter where you live in the city, is you've got, you know, too much traffic. Too many people driving too fast through your neighborhood. <laughs> Doesn't matter where True, you yeah. live, you know. And so, so the city has gone through different phases where uh, either, you know, frankly, I'd say some neighborhoods were ignored, or some neighborhoods had certain projects where engineers wanted to try things in your neighborhood. The neighborhood associations have provided a feedback mechanism whereby our staff engineers can go to the neighborhood and say, "Hey, here are some things we want to try. What do you think of it?" Yeah, and so that. It has been a much better process. It's not always an easy process because not everybody agrees on what's an improvement versus what's not an improvement. But it has given us a way to get that real-time feedback before it comes to us as a city council, and then we have to split the baby. We don't, we don't, <laughs> okay. like, to, we don't like to be in that position. We like to have something come to us with as much consensus as possible from the neighborhood that, yes, we want these changes. So that's uh, that's at least one tangible outcome that we've seen from this. Yeah. So have you have you helped p- provide that platform to all these neighborhoods so that they're able to here's what here's what's going to help all of us make yeah. this work out. Yes. So not, not only have we provided a toolkit to the neighborhoods. Toolkit. Okay. Yeah. We we have a neighborhood toolkit. I'd be happy to supply that to you. But I have personally gone to the neighborhood association chair leadership meetings and addressed what. I hope to get out of this, and several of the actual neighborhood associations. I think I've been to every single neighborhood association, not all of their meetings, but to at least one meeting okay. for each of the neighborhoods. And, and it really does give you a sense of what's on people's minds. Yeah. And that temperature best by government test? Climate best. Climate best. Yeah. Share with us your insight into that. Okay. Well, so the story that I have heard, and I don't know that there's any verification of this, was that Kaiser Wilhelm, back in the late 1800s of Germany, sent expeditions worldwide to figure out where in the world was the best climate. Now, if this is true... In the world. Where okay. in the world. Okay. If this is true, you can only speculate as to why they did that. <laughs> okay. But I will say that they concluded that it was the Canary Islands and Redwood City, California. Really? That is, oh, that is the, the okay. most common story that is floating out there. So in, 19, in the 1920s, there was a slogan contest, and somebody came up with a slogan, you know, our climate is best by official government test, or something along those lines, which got shortened to climate best by government test. Okay. So the city has uh, embraced that yeah, slogan, yeah. and uh, you'll see there are a couple of arches that we have along Broadway mm-hmm. that, have, that feature that slogan. We used to have a shuttle called the Climate Best Express. <laughs> there, really... there was a, a Climate Best Fest for a few years. <laughs> so it's, it's stuck. And so yeah. whoever, whoever came up with that was very clever. Yeah. So in essence, the climate is one of the t- best 
climates in the world. Right. Temperature. I, I actually agree with it because it's just, just got the right perfect balance. Of yeah. It. So it was based on the, the most temperate climate. Meaning, temperate. Okay. Yeah. So it stays around, hovers around 72, you know, the whole year. If you, if you look at, at, at the temperature and how much it varies and then you average it out, it, it does hover around 72. And, you know, part of that is because we're, you know, we're shielded from a lot of the winds and the fog by the, the hills yeah. to the west, you know, but we do get a nice breeze here and there and you know it's it's a great place to live yeah well um how about the you know, the, the kaiser hospital the, that new building what was really interesting i thought about uh, uh, that is going in through that even though there was a lot of construction for it probably still yeah there still is still is it didn't seem like there was construction usually you know it's 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 uh, the traffic is divergent uh it's uh, a lot of uh, it's very cumbersome and how were they able you guys able to do that to where it wasn't because it's there's not you sometimes you don't even pay attention there's construction that's that's a, an art in its own way right uh, you know again it de- a lot depends on the developer and, okay and they you know they work closely with our staff i mean our, i i am very proud of our staff we have very good planners on our staff and engineers and they take a look at every aspect of this and work with developers to try to make these uh, as least disruptive as possible yeah, and not diff- not just in the case of Kaiser, but with every development. Now, there's always going to be disruption, but we really think through how we can not impact people's daily lives. Yeah. So, how about the port? I don't. I know nothing of the port other than Redwood City has a port, and it's international port, is it not? Yeah. 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 So the port, the port has been around for since the city was started. I mean, that's it started because. Um, you know, back when the redwood logs were brought down from Skyline and they would land in the basin, which is now Main Street, that's where the original port was. And so all the redwood logs were shipped out all over the country so that people could build houses. That's how the city got its name. Ah, Not because we have a lot of redwoods, but because that's where the redwood trees were sent to be shipped out from the port. So originally, I mean, originally the town was called Mezzesville after a person named Simon Mezzes who bought, oh, he, he was granted a bunch of land. That's a whole long okay. story. And then it became known as Redwood Landing for a short time because that's where the Redwood Logs were. And then it uh, became Redwood City as we know it today. But the port shifted east towards the bay. The port is established by our charter, which uh, again was written in the 1920s. And port commissioners are appointed by the council, but they operate independently. So the port chooses its own businesses that they want to have out there. They approve their own contracts. The port attorney collaborates very closely with the city attorney, but they really do operate independently in a lot of ways. And they're a business. They operate like a business. So they're profitable and they subvent money back to the city for the general fund each year. This year, they contributed 500000 to the general fund. And I have um, suggested that maybe that could get up to a million dollars in the next few years. Oh. So yeah. it, it really is um, something that is unique in the Bay Area. I mean, so Oakland has a port, but there's a lot of things that come into our port that are um, are unique, particularly to the peninsula in the South Bay. Wow. How about the, what, what recent projects is the city working on? If you're at liberty to share with us now, you know, what, what the Redwood City is working on that you can share with us. Well, we have, we have a lot of things going yeah. on. Since, since we're talking about the port, I'll say one thing that we're working on right now is trying to bring ferry service to the port. 
So that would allow people. No way, really? It, it would allow oh. commuters to go back and forth from the East Bay to Redwood City without having to get in their cars, hopefully take some cars off the street. Same thing, they could, they could commute from San Francisco down to Redwood City via ferry. There are a lot of employees uh, from Google who are out there on the campus that's out at the end of the port at Seaport Center. So that's one of the things we're working on related to the port. But there are quite a few things that you know the city is working on in general. So I think... Oh, uh, no, that's uh, awesome. So yeah. you, you say that 500,000 and you want to bring up to... You, you obviously want to bring it up to a million. Could it go even further because you have that unique spot as a port, as a city? It's a very unique place. It could. I yeah. mean, there are a lot of businesses that operate out of the port. So there are a lot of things that are shipped to the port, gypsum, bauxite, a lot of building materials. Um, I think that part of the reason why uh, it has been so successful recently is because of some of the construction boom that we've seen. But, you know, I think there is a way for ferry service to be profitable. And there are other businesses that operate there. So, for example, Sims Metal Management is a recycling center where they, you know, recycle cars and other materials. So I think it's a matter of what ideas uh, the port commissioners and the new port director have uh, to try to increase revenue. I you know, kind of threw that number out there arbitrarily. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I don't have a timeline for yeah. that, but I do think in the next few years it's possible. I mean, we're, we're up to $500,000 in the subvention. I think with some creative ideas and, and decision-making, I think they can get there. Yeah. How about merchant groups of Redwood City? How often do you meet with them and do they provide insight or uh, ideas Yes, we have, well, we have a downtown um, business group. They're very active. I know they meet monthly and I, I meet regularly with them. Uh, we also have a very active chamber of commerce. Um, so I also meet monthly with them and, uh, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of interesting opinions there and sometimes some really good (laughs) ideas come out of those meetings. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we have to recognize that each of us has different goals and sometimes those goals align, and sometimes those goals are in slightly different directions, and we have to figure out where the common ground is. Yeah. How often do you have to not only act on what you're being a mayor, what is required of it, but actually taking in ideas as well at the same time? Do you ever put a percentage on it, like 50 50, 40 60 40 ideas, and then implementation? How often? How do you balance that? Oh, well, I, would say, I would say that we. I'm, I'm constantly listening to ideas. Um, the, the challenge with ideas is that not, not all of them are feasible. And, and unfortunately, I, I know some of the limitations of government and what we are able to do. But, you know, we're certainly always listening and, and open to those ideas. Yeah. How did, so that experience, it sounds like from, from the beginning of your, uh, when, when did you begin be in politics, if you can recall, just from the very beginning, even if it was an intern. Well, so the fir- I mean, the first time I ran for yeah. office was in, in 1995. Okay, so 95 um, from 95 to today. Right, but I, but prior to that, I mean, I, I did uh, I did an internship uh, for uh, Leo McCarthy's campaign office. He was our lieutenant governor for a few years. Um, that that was in the late 80s, and that kind of gave me a taste. and And I've worked on various political campaigns over the years. Yeah. So all those experiences lead you to where you are now. And uh, do you feel like you're just starting in a way? Because it sounds like it seems like as much as you've been involved, it's very fresh. Well, it's actually quite the opposite. I'm, okay. I'm in my last term and I have two years left on my term and I have no plans to run for anything else. So, you know, I will help candidates and I will stay involved, but it'll probably be behind the scenes at that point. And that's by design that you're like, okay. That's it. Well, so by the time I'm finished in two years, it will have been 18 years 
uh, because of that extra year in 98, and then also because uh, we had our terms extended by one year to comply with the state law that made us move from odd years to even years. So 18 years, uh, I'm 51. That's a big chunk of my life. And I think uh, my wife is definitely ready to get a little bit more time back. And, you know, we're going to just see where we end up in a couple of years. And I will, um, you know, see if there are other ways I can get involved. But for now, I have no plans to do anything else in politics. <laughs> I go back to Ian, the too far, you don't want to get too far in front of the public. I'm curious about that. Yeah. What's, what's it? How would you describe that? Well, so we, you know, bringing people along is a process. People need to understand that we are going to change and we are going to grow. And it's a matter of how we do that, how and when. Um, and so that's where, you know, bringing people along is, is critical. Uh, we'll do that through our neighborhood associations. We'll do that through meetings with our business groups. But, you know, if you don't bring people along, then you're going to get a tremendous amount of pushback. Yeah. And that pushback, are you... Uh is there, is it standard, like the pushback, which you know what you're going to get? Are you, how do I say this? Are you prepared for almost any sort of negative response to anything that might move things forward as far as growth or development? Well, I'm, I'm prepared for all sorts of negative responses, but if you can bring people along, then you're going to minimize those negative responses. People may not necessarily like everything that's changing, but they'll understand why it's happening and they'll feel like they have some influence over it. That's important. Yeah. Is, is to make people feel like they have a say in what happens in their community. Excellent. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Drivers, turn off your idling engines. Every day, millions of parked vehicles idle needlessly, sometimes for hours. An idling car releases the same pollutants as a moving car and in 10 minutes adds one pound of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere along with other pollutants linked to human illnesses such as asthma, bronchitis, and cancer. Contrary to popular belief, restarting your engine does not burn more fuel than leaving it idling, and warming it up for more than 30 seconds actually harms it. Turn off your idling engine if you need to wait for more than 10 seconds. Save gas, money, and the air we breathe. For more information, contact the Environmental Defense Fund at edf.org. We're talking today with Ian Bain, mayor of Redwood City, California. For more information, you can visit www.redwoodcity.org. That's www.redwoodcity.org. And what kind of mindset, at least in your experience, do you think is needed for a mayor of a city to have to kind of move up or keep up with the in the 21st century? Is there a set mindset you kind of have? You know, whether it's like you, you said, I notice a lot, you listen. And then you have to act on things and be kind of wise about decisions and look at it long term what is there a mindset that you think makes for a successful mayor or city council member i do but i don't know that it's specific to the 21st century i think it's really about you know understanding that you're serving the people that you know they're the ones who elected you and it's sort of a a service mentality you know i i feel like you know it's an honor and a privilege for me to have the opportunity to do this and and i only have that opportunity because people put their faith and their trust in me. So I never forget that. I'm, it's all about them, the voters. Yeah. So the, literally you have the consciousness of the whole city on your back in a way. I do. I, you know, I think that where, where politicians sometimes go wrong is they forget who elected them. And, you know, there's that old saying, you know, dance with who brung you. Well, I think that some people 
consider their big donors the ones who who got them elected. I mean, ultimately, it's it's the people who decided to elect you. And so um, we sometimes find ourselves in conflict between what the people want and what the big donors want. You know, if if, if you can find the middle ground, that's great. But if I'm ever conflicted about that, I'm going to side with the people. Yeah. Speaking of the people, you've got everyone from child birth to you know, when they pass on and everything in between and you, you know, it seems like it's going back to when you were, when you were a kid, like that certain feeling. And I know it sounds a little, maybe a little peculiar, but it's a feeling you want people to have, which is what you have, Mm -hmm. because regardless of their socioeconomic background, there's still a feeling and a sense of belonging. What's your thought? Yeah. So one of our priorities is a community for all ages. So, you know, it's, there have to be fun things and good things for kids to do. It's got to be a great place to raise families, but it's also got to be a great place for our seniors too. So providing services for them, you know, making it easy for them to get around and get their needs taken care of. And to go back to what you were saying about the 21st century, I mean, you do have to have a mindset of always looking towards the future. You know, we're always looking at, you know, what is coming and we all know that technology is going to change our lives in dramatic ways. Uh, we alluded to the self-driving cars. So we've got to plan for that. And we have to think about you know, whether we're going to need some of these parking garages in the future or whether they can be built in a, such a way that they can be repurposed for something else once we don't need garages. You know, so we are looking at the future. And I think we're going to have to take a look again at our general plan at some point and say, okay, what is, the, what is Redwood City going to look like in 20 years? But you know, honestly you're making your best guess. I mean, you take a lot of input from a lot of different people, but we don't know. I mean, if, if you'd asked me 10 years ago if Redwood City would look the way it does now, it's like, no, <laughs> I, really? I envisioned something a little bit different. But and again, it's like having your hands on a Ouija board and kind of <laughs> There's that Ouija board again. seeing where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, is there anything else that we, we may not have covered uh, on our show that you'd like to share with us or share with our, your audience about the city of Redwood City, yourself personally? So my primary goal as mayor is to be a model for how government can and should work. And so I think there are a lot of ways, a lot of little ways that we are trying to live up to that in terms of working with residents, bringing them along, uh, understanding their needs, uh, being responsive, communicating both ways, in stark contrast to some of the things you see in Washington, I do think that government can be a really positive force in people's everyday lives. And so it's a little bit like, you know, the changing that perception is a little bit like turning a battleship around. But I feel like, you know, over the last uh, last year, uh, I have seen some progress that way. And I really, I do believe that um, some of the things we're doing are going to be things that other cities will try to emulate. Excellent. Ian, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on our show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Ian Bain, mayor of Redwood City, California. Ian has served on the city council since 2003, in addition to having served a term in 1998. For more information, feel free to visit www.redwoodcity.org. That's redwoodcity.org. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and on location, and is a production of KCC Radio. 
Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Jaggi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.
Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.